0: Go ahead and make your way back to your seats. We're going to go ahead and get started. Move to our sermon time. As it's been said, we're glad you guys are here with us to worship and to continue to find ourselves celebrating the Easter season. Uh, and and to stay in this season of feasting and celebrating, and we'll talk more about that. Let me pray, and then we'll jump right into what we're going to do for this morning. Father, we thank you and we praise you that we can uh, be in this space, that we can gather before you, um, and that there's something to this, Lord, that there's something in this moment when we find ourselves um, near one another and with one another, uh, that you are present among us, and that you have seen fit in your sovereignty and in your goodness, um to allow and to uh yeah to continue to make your people uh appreciate these moments and and to find you in these spaces and so we just pray and ask that as we open up your word as we move towards the table and we continue to worship uh, this morning as your church that you would do what you promised to do which is to be present uh, to reveal yourself to bring your mercy and your grace and your goodness to us we love you we praise you in jesus name amen All right, let's just, we'll just go right for it. Uh, There's not really a lot of announcements. Uh, Summertime's getting close, so be on the lookout for some things that we'll do this summer. But other than that, we hope that you continue to find yourself celebrating and uh, sustaining what it means to be in a season of feasting as the church and and as the people of God. And if that's weird language for you and you're like, wait, 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 like spiritual practices are partying. Yes, that is a spiritual practice uh, to celebrate, to feast, to have a good time. And that's part of what it means to sit in the Easter season. Here's the realities of Easter. And and this is what I think is amazing to me. And this is like remove yourself from the theological, uh, remove yourself from the spiritual component that we believe in, that we uh, say we believe, and, and that we hold on to. There's this component or this thing that happens with Easter that is like historical, right? That we like, this thing's different, what the church was doing in the New Testament, what was happening in Acts and in the letters that we read, is this movement, this idea that is centered around this very idea, this, this centering part is resurrection. Because the reality of it is, is that in the Jewish people, they had long, I almost said long-longed, uh, but that wouldn't have been the best, you know, but long-awaited, long-desired for a Messiah to come. And if you read uh, text in between the intertestamental period, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, this period of kind of like somewhat silence, uh, if you follow that history, there's a continual uh, theme where you see these people kind of pop up, these moments where the Jewish people think, ah, this is it, this is the Messiah. And it wasn't just the Jewish people, it was a lot of people that were uh, trying to allow their small little movement Their people, their nation state, their ideals to rise to the surface. And an empire like Rome has made it their mission to not allow that to happen. And they were very, very efficient. And they were very, very good at it. And their primary tool and their primary weapon to stamp out and to silence movements and rebellions was crucifixion. And if you study history, Roman history, non-Roman history, if you go back and you look at that period of time, in that period there were lots of resurrection, or lots of crucifixions. And a lot of them were would-be messiahs. People that were claiming that this was the thing, that they were going to overthrow the government, that they were going to down the powers to be. And Rome would swoop in, they would stamp that out, and do you know what happened to those movements? They ended. They stopped. Rome was very good at doing this. They had been doing it for a while. And the powers before them did the same thing. And yet, this movement, this thing that is happening, this way of Jesus, these people that were a part of this small little sect of a religion, it didn't happen. Jesus is crucified. And then the movement doesn't stop, but it actually grows, and it grows really rapidly. And whether you are a firm believer in this, or you're like, okay, that's good and grand, and I'm not one of the people that want to take the time to you know, prove the whole Bible being completely true by historical things, and like, show, that's not what the Bible's trying to do. It's not what the text is trying to do. But it is something that you have to reckon with this. That this Easter reality is something that you have to kind of like grasp or or, uh, grapple with. You have to hold on to that this is the case. That this thing that happened, something happened that day thousands of years ago. Something went on. And it went on enough that this group of people that were a bunch of nobodies from nowhere, that were the outcasts, that were the the small towns that were the ones that didn't have it all together that didn't make the best grades that didn't have the most money didn't have all the answers that this group of people decided that they weren't going to let go of this idea and Jesus in this moment meets with them and there's this 40 days and, and even in that 40 days they don't get it all they don't have it all figured out they still have questions they're still messing things up And then Jesus disappears again, right? At least to them. They're like, where did he go? He's gone again. Like, what is happening? And in the middle of all of this, and in like amongst this turmoil, they're afraid, they're hiding. This is Acts 2. We see it. There's this moment where they're inside locked doors because they're terrified of what might happen. They're terrified that they will be next. And for many of them, they were next. And yet, despite that, No political clout, no social power, no, you know, whatever status. In fear and in trembling, they held tight to this idea. And not just this idea, but this reality. They wouldn't let go of it, even though it didn't always make sense to them. They didn't have all the answers. They didn't have all the questions figured out. It didn't happen the way they thought it was supposed to happen, but they held on to it. And something grew it grew quickly. It grew rapidly. But even then, when we say it grew quickly, we say it grew quickly in the grand context of, like, history of humanity. I mean, it still took, like, 400 years for this thing to become, like, the main way of doing religion and, and understanding God. Like, it didn't just happen overnight. What happened in the midst of this is the letters that we get, like, that we're going to read today from Second Corinthians. We get this idea that these things, they kind of happen over time and what's amazing is you see with the disciples and what you see in the New Testament is that everything changed instantly. It was all completely different and yet simultaneously what you get is this sense that in some ways nothing changed at all. They still didn't have it all figured out, they were still the poor fishermen from nowhere, they still weren't in power and they were still being persecuted being pursued. At one point, they will quite almost literally be hunted to be killed because of their claims and their statements of belief of following Jesus. And I think that when we start talking about resurrection and we talk about Easter and why I like to think of Easter as a season, not just because I think it's really fun to push the idea of the spiritual practices of feasting and having a good time, but it's because I think it's too tempting for us to think of Easter and resurrection as a day and a moment. And it was, and it is. Many of you in this room have experienced this. You have had that moment, and you know what I'm talking about, where everything changed in a moment. I, on the top of my head, if I tell you my story, and I won't go into the details, but, and you can ask me about it. It's not that I'm hiding this, it's just We won't take the time for it. But I can go back, and there are like two very distinct moments in my life, like a two-hour period. Like, I can get it down to like, it was in between lunch and like the afternoon when we were done, you know, like, and that something happened, and I can name it, and it changed my whole life. Like, completely changed it. Flipped it upside down, everything I'd ever thought was like, north was now south, you know, like, it was all different. And yet, at the same time, nothing changed. I was still me in that moment. And I still had to deal with all my stuff. And I still had to go do all the things that like I had to do to kind of continue with my life. And I, I had to finish the things that I was a part of. And I, I had to keep my commitments. And I, everything was different. And yet it was all kind of the same. For those of you that are married in the room, I remember having that same feeling like after you get married. I don't know if that was, this is true for everyone. But you're finally married and you're like, this is amazing. And yet somehow it's like, it's, kind of the same. And then like it's a really profound thing. Some people get angsty about it and they're like, I don't know, like I thought it would be different, but it, it just kind of feels normal. And I'm like, yeah, that's good. That's a good thing. Parenting can do something similar. There's a moment where you like you, everything is flipped upside down and it, those first six weeks of bringing a newborn home, like that's not real life. As like, ask David and McKenzie, like right now, like they're in it, man. Like it, that's not the way life functions. And yet, simultaneously, if you would ask them, there would be a good chance. They'd be like, yeah, life's kind of normal. Like, we're just kind of, you know, you go to bed, you wake up. The angst is still there. The pressures are still there. The joys are still there. This is the way life has a way of working out. And we're tempted, I think, in things like resurrection, in things like Easter, to assume that everything was supposed to change on a dime and that all of a sudden now everything would just be different. That all of our problems would be fixed. This is really kind of where we're at societally. I'm going to guess it was probably a human problem. Uh, This is something that humanity has probably always struggled with. But I think with the advent of technology and the rapid rise and the ease of doing things, we now think that everything should be instantaneous. We think, this is mine. I was just complaining about this yesterday. Like, I, I no longer am frustrated when something is cash only. I'm frustrated when I can't just tap my phone and walk away like, what do you mean I have to get a card out? Like, what is this? The 20th century? Like, come on, man. I'm not a Philistine here. Like, let me use my phone. We look at things, and if it's not two-day shipping, we go, I can probably find it somewhere else. <laughs> we don't understand that there's a process of waiting. There's a process of kind of expectation. And we want our lives to function the same way. You start hanging out with, like, children... And you realize that like, it's innate within them, whether they understand that it's technology or not. They want life to be easy. They want to figure it out the fastest way possible. And you can kind of make fun of them, and then you realize that you just do the adult version of those things all the time in your own life. That you're frustrated, that you're upset, and that you sit around and hope and long and wait for everything to just be easy and to just happen like it's supposed to. And that's just not the way life oftentimes works out. And we apply that. We import that idea and that thought into the resurrection too often. We assume, well, if Christ is risen, then it's supposed to just like change. My last thing I'll blame for it is uh, home makeover shows. Jeremiah shaking his head. He's like, I know this pain. I read this really funny article uh, a few years ago about, it was a contractor, and he was actually talking about how much more difficult his job had gotten over the last few years because everybody would say, well, on, like, Chip and Joanna, like, they, like, that's how they do it, and they're like, that's not real life. Like, things don't happen in 35 minutes. That's not the way you remodel a bathroom. It doesn't happen. And we have this condensed down version of what we think is supposed to happen. Social media and all of these things, it does the same thing to us. We see someone's progress. We see someone's life. We see something happening. And we assume, well, I saw that in a 15-second story, so that must be how long it should take for that to happen to me. And even in Scripture, I think we have a, a tendency To look at the New Testament and assume, like, well, look, like, it's just, it's right here. Like, Jesus was resurrected. He ascended. Some stuff happened in Acts. And, like, now here we are. We're here. just happened. And all of these people's lives just changed. And we miss that there is a patient fermentation that has to happen among the people of God. That there is a long process that you cannot become the thing that you're supposed to become if you don't find yourself waiting in the midst of it all. If you don't find yourself kind of given to what is beyond just in front of you. And this is what 2 Corinthians is about. So let me read the passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 1 through 10. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan in our burden, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. Okay, so quick background uh, here, just briefly. 2 Corinthians is written a little bit later than uh, some of Paul's other writings. And I think that matters because if you've read Paul before, and this is one of the places where people that want to poke holes in the Bible, and this is where I'm saying the Bible's doing something, uh, you have to understand what the Bible's trying to do. It's doing something different a lot of times than what we are trying to in our modern 21st century kind of logic, reason, information, knowledge, what we're trying to understand it to be. But one of the things people will throw at the the scriptures is is Paul will definitively and kind of declaratively establish that he is going to see the return of the Lord. Before, you know, this happens, he's going to see God come back. Like, we need to be ready. We need to be faithful. Second Corinthians, I think you get this sense that Paul is beginning to wrestle with, I'm getting old and I've just had a near-death experience in the story of Paul. He almost is uh, martyred. I think he's realizing, like, there's a chance that maybe I uh, stated that with a little bit more boldness and uh, definitiveness than I intended to. And I think you see him beginning to wrestle in his own life. And this is uh, pure conjecture here. I don't know the inside of Paul's minds. But I think you get a sense that there's starting to be this questioning of, like, what does happen exactly if I die before Christ's return? The parousia is the fancy theological term for it. The second coming. What happens? What happens inside of us? Because I think what Paul, as he's writing to the Corinthians, this people that he is uh, pleading with to give their life to Jesus, what he's saying to them is like, I'm with you. I understand. Like, we have to, uh, we have, to have some sort of conception of this thing mattering. Because here's what I think is probably true for most of us in this room, maybe not all of you, but maybe you need to learn to be more honest with yourself if, if you wouldn't say yes to this, but I don't know, that's your story, not mine. But I think that as I talk about feasting and celebrating as a spiritual discipline, and I warned you, I said, listen to me, trust me on this, you're going to get three, four weeks into Easter time, you're going to go, I don't know, maybe Lent's easier like, maybe fasting is easier. You're going to be more acquainted with, like, we kind of know how to be sad. We know, in our, especially in the South, like, this whole, like, uh, everything, like, this stoicism that has to kind of remain here. Like, everything's got to kind of, you know, we, we know how to just sort of be like, ah, oh, whatever, it's not a big deal. In our cynicism, in our culture, where we doubt everything, where we would rather be a wallflower... Where it's easier to be a hater than it is to be a fan. Like, it's hard to celebrate. But here's the other, the, the reason that's more kind of close to home for all of us, that we don't want to talk about so much of why it's easier to lament. Lament than it is to celebrate, because the reality of it is, is for all of us in this room, if it hasn't happened, it will, there's a moment where you start to ask yourself, is this really all true? And not because of some heady theological idea that we can sit around and talk about late until the night, and I love those conversations. That's what we say it is, most of the time. We say it's a theological or a, a, you know, a logical kind of debate. I don't know, I just don't believe it. I'll say for me, maybe not for everyone, but for me, a lot of times the things that I struggle with and doubt is because, like, I've prayed for that again and again, and it just never happened, and I can go back to being a little boy, praying some of the same prayers then that I do now, and so, yeah, sometimes I wonder if prayer really works, and I wrestle with it, and I kind of avoid it. I want to step over here from time to time, right, because I go, yes, obviously prayer works have a master's degree in divinity like I should be able to like and I could write a paper on defending prayer right I could I could tell you all the reasons and why this that and the other and, and make a really good theology of prayer but when your prayers aren't answered over a lifetime you have questions you wrestle when you believe deeply in the hope and the goodness of the resurrection and you go yeah but my life hasn't gotten any better and I know it's supposed to impact my life now. But it hasn't. We're supposed to be in Eastertide and life still sucks. We're in a celebrating feasting season and every week feels like I'm still stuck in Lent because those are my circumstances and my moment and I can't change that. It gets exhausting to try to embrace these things. It gets exhausting to try to pursue the goodness of the Lord when you're like, I don't even know if it's real. It's real. And I think Paul gets this to the people he's writing to. He's saying, I understand that there are moments, there are places, there are times when you are going to wonder whether this is all really even worth it. Whether you should even be giving your life over to this. And what happens when we die, when we haven't seen it come to fruition? When we haven't seen the promises that we've been told and been given like, manifest in front of us? What are we going to do? Where, where does this all end? And I think that that's the part that he's trying to say, is that this thing, this longing, this desire, has to go beyond just what's in front of us. And as a believer, part of believing into the resurrection is holding on to this reality that is true beyond just our imminent frame, our life in front of us right now, this, this moment now. A lot of you grew up, and myself included, In church and in spaces that uh, we maybe only ever understood salvation in following Jesus as like a life insurance policy, they would give nods towards, uh, yeah, it changes your life now, but it really was only supposed to change the way you behaved now. And then, then they would be like, oh, I promise that if you do all these things, like all that over there is not that fun. And then if you were like me and you had to figure things out for your own self, you realize that actually that stuff can be quite fun and enjoyable. And that sometimes doing the right thing isn't always the fun thing. And that being like doing what is good for you in in the long term. And then you kind of start to wrestle with these ideas and you go back and forth. And you go, yeah, it really is kind of just a life insurance policy. Because our theology was shallow and short. And I think... A lot of us in these spaces, Mosaic included, me and Kyle and where where we come from, I think we've done a very good job of talking more deeply about how the profundity of the gospel and the realities of the resurrection come back to impact our lives here and now. And we talk about what it means to advocate for justice and, and for equality because of the sake of the gospel, and, and what it looks like for your life to experience peace here and now, and that the good life, this eternal life, this resurrection life is available here and now. And that is all true. My own uh, misgivings is I think I sometimes can overemphasize that and forget about some of these things, this, this far-out, long-reaching, this kind of end goal, that this is also true, that what they were teaching us as children though that maybe was overemphasized then, it doesn't make it wrong. There's this reality that some of what we do here and now won't make sense or necessarily see it come into fruition until that moment where we're face-to-face with Jesus. So, to go very philosophical here for just a moment, stick with me. There is a Canadian philosopher named Charles Taylor And uh, he wrote this gigantic tome called uh, Secular Age. And it is huge and I don't understand most of it. But um, I've read some people that understand more of it than I do. And that's helpful. Uh, But he has this way of talking about the the thing that we are uh, primarily given to in our day and age. And I used this phrase just a second ago. But he calls it the imminent frame. And what he means by this is societally speaking, whether you are a Christian or an atheist, uh, that like what culturally as a result of the Enlightenment and uh, the scientific revolution and the technological age and the information age and all the things that we're experiencing now in this culmination of the way we understand money and everything, we're here, that what we have a tendency to do is our baseline operation is to kind of only understand the world now and what's right in front of us. And I think it's been good that we, in our faith and pursuing Jesus, have uh, understood how the gospel wants to impact that now. It wants to come back to it. And it wants to allow us to experience the world more fully. Delight and joy and beauty are intended to be a part of your life. And that is, like, God-breathed delight. He is a God of abundance. He is a God that gives good things, and you should experience good things, and you should enjoy the taste of good food and the enjoyment of good drink and good company and the world around you. It is our Father's world, right? It's good to be here. And so he intends for us to understand that that to be the case. But culturally, what we're all prone to is to see what is just kind of here. And what Taylor would say is that we, we become obsessed with the material, the kind of the now, this moment, and what is lost in that is any kind of sense of transcendence nothing kind of like outside of us obviously this is a problem in the new testament it's not new to humanity but i think it's uh, hyper realized or, or hyper uh, felt in our moment today and maybe that's just us feeling that way uh, maybe everybody would say that i don't know but it's the reality is for us And so Taylor wants to say that this is part of the problem with the world, is that we are only focused on kind of what we can see, what we can name, and that's the way a lot of us function in our lives. This is true in a myriad of things. This is true in the way we are students. It's true of the way we function in friendships and in family and marriage and parenting. We too often want to understand how do we get like the thing that we're after now, and we kind of lose sight, or how do we make the thing that we're doing now easier? And so it, this is like relationship 101, kind of emotional intelligence, IQ kind of stuff. The, the way this impacts just our day-to-day on a really basic surface level is that oftentimes we think, well, it would be easier to not have that confrontation in this moment, so let's just avoid it, and we don't think about what that might mean for later. Who am I becoming as a person by just like allowing myself to experience these moments? In parenting, it is easier uh, to, to cut short the way you think that you should parent and to kind of take the easy road without thinking about what kind of child am I creating if I continue to respond in this kind of way. Ann and I say in our household all the time, like we, we're constantly reminding ourselves that we're not raising four-year-olds or even 14-year-olds, but we are trying to raise adults. Like You have to have this long game. In marriage, hear me out, married people. And those of you that maybe are on the cusp of marriage, You have to think about the decisions you're making now and what it means in 18 years from now. Like, yeah, 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 right now it might be fine to do that. It might be good to do that thing that you're kind of of handling that conflict that way. Or, hey, right now you don't need whatever X, Y, Z it is. But what kind of marriage are you creating in 18 years from now, 20 years from now? Is this, like, who are you becoming in this as a couple? And this is true of individual relationships and individual moments. So the imminent frame, Taylor would argue, is a way of culturally that we think about just what is directly in front of us, kind of, is this easy? Does it feel good? Does it feel right? And it's created all these judgment and value characteristics that we can then assign to things so that then we just kind of do what we want to do. And we get, well, it feels good. It seems right. And and we have all these different ways of judging what is right and wrong. What the gospel directly confronts and what 2 Corinthians 5 is confronting is this idea that life is not lived just in the moment. Now here's the paradox of the gospel and what I love about it, because I love paradoxes, is that it also is all about the moment. It's about the life we live now. And yet it's not about the life we live now in the moment, but about what we're becoming and what the long road is. So in our relationships and in our marriage, we're talking 10 years, 18 years, you know, six months, very short. What Paul is arguing is that in the realities and in light of the resurrection, hope, and the gospel and what it means for us theologically and philosophically is that then in our life, we should not just hold forth this image or this idea of something that might happen in a few years or even in a few decades, but he is saying that this thing is true, carried out over eternity. The forever, there's this thing that we should be pursuing. This resurrection life has eternal and never-ending realities. C.S. Lewis, who is, you know, all good things when it comes to longing and desire. What he will argue or articulate very well is this idea that in the moment now, that what is finite, what is uh, mortal, what will have an end, is all of the things that we kind of think about: legacy and uh, posterity's sake, culture, uh, works that we produce, uh, wealth that we build, status that we kind of come to. You think about, you know, the greatest basketball player of all time, whoever you want it to be. We'll just put both of them up there: Michael Jordan and LeBron James. And, like, there's legacy and there's status there. And you may think, or, or the Steve Jobs or whatever, f- like, world you want to live in, that there's this way in which that, that, like, see, that transcends their life. That's more. And what Paul is going to argue, what C.S. Lewis is going to argue, what Charles Taylor is going to argue is that we know as believers, in light of something like the resurrection, those things are finite. You are not. You are being a creation of the Most High, you being a son and daughter of the Father, you being a brother and friend of Jesus, you being empowered and indwelled dwell, with the Spirit of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, are being made a new creation, here and now, in this moment, and you are becoming immortal. You will last forever and what you do and what you become not just what you like do in like sense of what you produce the impact you have what you are becoming this thing inside of you the character of who you are it is becoming something and that will last forever in light of this thing of the resurrection We are moved past seeing just that this is a moment now here that we kind of wrestle with. But we are moved to understanding that what we bind on earth, we bind in heaven. And what we loose on earth, we loose in heaven, to quote Jesus. And Paul is saying, there is this way in which you must live your life in the face of difficulty and in struggle. When things do not make sense. When the resurrection does not feel real to you in the moment, which will be inevitable, you will have moments on regular occurrences where the resurrection and hope and joy and peace do not feel real. And you will have moments, as Kyle said quite eloquently last week, where you do not feel like you have faith. But that's not faith. Like if you just feel it, if you know it, conjure it up. We talk a lot in our household about It's okay to be afraid because you can't have courage. You can't have bravery if you don't feel fear, right? Like that moment of fear. Well, I'm not brave enough. No, bravery is not the fear that you feel, right? So that's expanded out to saying, like, that's the way it is operating here. These moments, these places where it doesn't feel like it's happening. It doesn't feel like it's true. It doesn't feel like this is the way it's supposed to be. And what Paul would say is that's right. It does not. Because we know something that is more true than this. We know something that is more real than this. That you would take off the mortal and be clothed with life. I love this imagery because what he is not saying is that we somehow will just get rid of our bodies. If if you read this passage and you hear that, this is a subtle kind of like nuance. You got to follow it. It, He never says that we're going to like become some spiritual disembodied being. In fact, he says that one without a body, would be, it would be like being naked. It would make no sense that your soul would just be laid bare. What he is saying is the body, the thing that you are now, this material being in this place and space that you find yourself, breathing oxygen, uh, putting out carbon dioxide or mon- monoxide, which one is di- dioxide? Yes, thank you. Breathing it back out. This moment, this space that you find yourself, that that will continue to be and to exist. And what he's saying is that there is a way in which you do not lose that. But you put on something on it. It matures into more. It becomes something else. And so he's saying, hold on to it. Give yourself to the things that you know you need to be giving yourself to. Follow and practice the ways of Jesus. Now, even when it doesn't always feel like it's the most sensible thing to do or the fun thing to do or the right thing to do even, right? He's saying in this moment now, we are away from him. He uses all these different metaphors, and I love how he starts to mix them because I love a good mixed metaphor as well as I love a paradox. He starts with tents and then he goes to clothes, and then he starts talking about tents and clothes at the same time. He uses this imagery of us seeing and believing, and what he's saying is in this moment now, we are not there, but we're, we're going there. We're getting there. We're edging towards that. And as we do so, the thing that we need to remember is that we are not going to lose what we have. It is going to become something more real and true than we can ever imagine. And I love that imagery that, thus, you and I, the people that we are here today, like, we're not just going to shed all of that, it's not just going to disappear. But it's going to become something. And as it becomes something, and as we find that distance and we experience that gap between us and what we know to be true, then what we do is we give ourselves to the pleasure of Jesus. I love uh, the song we sang today that Jesus will be satisfied. So often we think about the satisfaction of God and all this in the language of sin and wrath and Jesus' death on the cross. But this idea that Christ will be satisfied in you, living into and dwelling in and being clothed in what you're supposed to be clothed in, becoming what you are meant and intended to become, living into and holding on to the realities that are more true eternally and transcendently than what seems to be true here and now. And Christ will take pleasure in that. And so we give ourselves to his pleasure to live in the way that he intends us to live. And that does something. It moves us to something. It creates something within us that cannot be shaken or burnt away or will never rust or mold. All of the imagery that we have from the New Testament that gives us this image. Lewis, to quote him again, in the same space that I was talking about, it's from... uh, not, as, not until we have faces his, uh, his work on glory. And what he says, to continue, he says, that there's no such thing as mortal that you encounter day to day. He says, in fact, that if you were to see what they were becoming, that you're actually interacting with things that would be so beautiful and so godlike that you would be tempted to fall down and worship them if you saw what they were going to be one day. Or it would be something of your nightmares. And you'd be tempted to run and to hide. And he says every day, every decision that we make, we are in the process of becoming one of those two things. And everything we do in our interactions with one another are in the process of helping each other along onto those journeys. Because we hold and we know that this isn't all that there is. Life and its goodness and the things that are worthwhile are the things that are worth waiting on, taking time. And we have to hold this kind of uh, end, if you will, Another philosophical word is the telos, or the telos, depending on how you want to pronounce your words. It doesn't matter to me. But it's this idea that there's this end, this, like, this thing that humanity and that people are supposed to achieve. And in our modern times, we've kind of done away with this idea that that exists for us. In Scripture, what is so profound and beautiful about the idea of the gospel and the resurrection is that Christ is both the end and the means by which we get there. Because I think the temptation is to hear a sermon like this, to say, yeah, 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 you're right, okay, i got to do the thing, and then you walk it back, and then you kind of end up going, well, like, but the end is, like, my good life, right? It's like, well, yes, but your good life in Christ. Your good life in Him. He is the end. He's also the beginning, the middle, the left and the right, all around you. It is always Christ. And this is what Paul is asking us to hold on to and to believe. That in the midst of our life, in the midst of our comings and our goings, when things seem up or they seem down, that there is this way in which we acknowledge and recognize that there is something that we're created for. That there's more to just this. That there is this transcendence that we have to hold on to and acknowledge. That we have to like, not let go of and be reminded of. And I'll say this as the band comes back up. We'll move into our time of communion. It it is easy for us, again, in these moments, to talk about how we understand this and this need for transcendence and this need and this longing when we experience all of our failures. When life has not gone the way that we think it should, we go, obviously, there's more to life than this. Obviously, this isn't the way life is supposed to be. You turn on the news. God's heart weeps as there is more violence. I, I open up my phone and I get the notification that there's another shooting, more people dead. Like we know this cannot be the way life is supposed to exist. Like that like Lord come quickly. As you grasp hold of this reality of the resurrection and what it means, you will begin to see that it is not just in the sad moments. If you have ever felt the pang or the longing for more when things are really, really good, I think you're getting it. Like, that's the Holy Spirit moving. Hear me when I say it's just not life working out the way you want it to. It's even in the most profound and beautiful moments. If you've ever sat on the precipice of something just so unfathomable and you're like, I can't believe this is happening. And there's been this part of you that goes, there's something else. And not in a like, oh, now I'm disappointed and I didn't think I would be disappointed. But in this moment where you feel it and you go, this thing, this moment, this should be like, this should go on for eternity. This should last forever. Like this is so good that there's no way this should just stop. That is the gospel. That is Jesus saying in this moment, you're right. This is the way it's meant to be. It's in the good because this life pales in comparison of what will be fully in Christ. And so each and every Sunday as we come and we practice these liturgical moments and you come and you take the bread and the cup, you're reminded both of those shortcomings and the failures and when you say, come Lord quickly, this cannot be. My heart grieves, it is broken, my life feels in shambles. And you take the bread and the cup and you praise to God that Jesus has made a way for you to experience more than just what the failures and shortcomings of life offer you. But you also come and you take and you receive of the bread and the cup and you are reminded that even when life is as good as it can be, that there is more and that you are intended to enjoy it and to celebrate it and to experience it here and now and to be overwhelmed by the beauty and the goodness of all that life has to offer in the Father's world and we sit in it and we praise Him for it and yet we know that this is not it and that there is more that resurrection holds a larger reality than what we can smell, touch, taste, see, and hear, and yet it impacts all of those things. All of those things are better because of the resurrection. And so I invite you to come and take the bread and the cup and to hold on to those elements as the band plays and ask honestly before the Lord what it means to step into this kind of long-term, long-view way of thinking and of living to embrace the realities of resurrection in your life, not just in the moment, but for... Eternity. And to give you the eyes to see both yourself and those around you in this kind of way. The materialness of what we are is good. And it will not just disappear, but there's so much more to it. It's becoming something. As the bread and the cup enters and and you take those elements, uh, we'll do that together. After the band finishes the song, I'll come back up and lead us in that. We're reminded that that is changing something in us that the Lord meets us here in these moments. So come there's gluten free on this side take the bread the